It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That crazy starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Yeah. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a machine, listen to yourself, the world, but it don't need something to your own head. Beat it up and I've seen that no seats. The ladder from the platter with the fear fight down. Like fire in a fire, with the system of the gang, the government for hiring the combat site. But it wasn't coming in a hurry, but you're getting it down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. This is the hour of doom. And Bloom. That's right. Friends and neighbors, welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour, a limitless land of learning (laughs) in a licentious world. Oh, yeah. I'm Joe Halton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over 900, wow, posts, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. And I'm Amy Alton. I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. That's right. We have a mission. Guess what our mission is? That is to put a medically prepared person in every family for any disaster. Every family. Any disaster. Right. We are the gang of two, the dynamic duo, the perfect pair. (laughs) And we're here to help you keep it together, even if everything else falls apart. Friends and neighbors... Have you been injured in an accident? Oh, boy. With a dastardly duck? Well, our attorney says, don't call me. Call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. And listen to this. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only. And do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or provider-patient relationship exists or is implied between the hosts and listeners. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. And we mean it. But you know what? When times are tough, the tough get going. You're going to have to be prepared. You have to learn what to do for injuries and illness in times of trouble. That is just smart. Shows you got a few... Neurons left in that noggin of yours. Yep, that's right. (laughs) And you know what? Smarter still would be to get some supplies and maybe a good medical kit. You know what? I know exactly who's got those medical kits. Who? And that is you, the lovely nurse Amy. You have an entire line of often imitated, never equaled medical kits at your store at doomandbloom.net. Everything from a kit for the casual hiker, biker, hunter, or whatever, to the full-blown community medic in the zombie apocalypse. (laughs) Uh Hey, what you thinking, Lincoln? Do us a favor. Connect with us. You know what? We learn as much from you as you do from us. 
That's pretty obvious. So connect with us. <laughs> it is easy. And here's the lovely nurse Amy to tell you how. Well, you can contact us anytime by email at drbonespodcast at aol.com. Find us on Facebook at our group Survival Medicine, Dr. Bones, and Nurse Amy. We have a couple of Facebook pages, Doom and Bloom, and Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy Show. You can follow us, oh, and a personal page, Joe Alton, MD. Is another Facebook. Mm-hmm. You can follow us on Twitter at Prepper Show. And don't forget our YouTube channel at DR Bones Nurse Amy. And our other podcast. Uh-huh. All about current events and even politics. Oh, very scary. American Survival Radio is now broadcast from KPJC Relevant News Talk Radio out of Salem, Oregon, and the voice of Lubbock, Texas, Radio <clears throat> KRFE 580 AM. Hey, and don't forget to see us when we travel the country spreading the good news of disaster <laughs> the good de- the medical good news? preparedness. Oh, well, medical preparedness. A good word, I guess. <laughs> you know, we're going to be in Nolens, Louisiana. Know, well, let me just say something. That started to sound bad. The good news of disaster. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it said. I'm like, disaster medical preparedness. <laughs> well, we're serious about that. But yes. you know what? you got to keep it light. If you don't laugh, you cry. That's right? true. There That's you go. True. So uh, we're going to be there in uh, New Orleans, Louisiana on March 4th to 5th. Uh, so see our uh, free lecture on yep. survival medicine. We have uh, awesome wound care suturing and stapling class that we uh, put together. And also uh, you can we'll check out our, our entire line. Yeah, we'll have some of our stuff kits. there. You can yeah. Touch it and see what it really looks like. And you know what? If you just happen to be in the area, come by and say hi. We always love to say hi to our listeners and meet meet you and see what's going on in your life. Absolutely. I just spoke to somebody a little while ago who lives in Kilgore, Texas. Uh Uh-huh. Name is Scott. And... Um, he didn't realize there was going to be another Dallas show. Last year was the first one he came to, the Self-Reliance Expo, and we met him there. So he was going to drive to this March 4th and 5th show uh-huh. at near New Orleans from Texas. He said it was about a five- to six-hour drive. Well, we're very but privileged to have that It was very kind of nice, but I told us. him to check out the Self-Reliance Expo because there is one in Dallas area again, May 26th and 27th. Right. So we'll be back there again. That's in so, Irving, Texas. Yeah. Well, that's near awesome. the airport, which is great <laughs> for awesome. us. Oh, I just wanted to say that we do have a Google Plus account that is Dr. Bones Podcast, I believe. Yep. Is it? Yes, and, it is. You're and right. our LinkedIn account is Joe Alton MD and Amy Alton ARNP. Oh, I want to tell you a little bit of news that sort of excited me, and that is that. We're finally beginning to pay attention to the decline of bees, you know, very important pollinators in our country. And bumblebees, you know, the bane of picnickers, and unfortunately for us, are in trouble in our country. And they finally are getting the attention of the Fish and Wildlife Service. For the first time, a bumblebee species has been placed on the endangered species oh, list. Oh, yay. That's what right. excellent news. I didn't even know that. It's not the first bee in the United States, but in the continental United States, yes. The yellow-faced bee in Hawaii has also been placed on the endangered species list. That just was two or three months ago as well. So finally, we're beginning to pay attention. Thank goodness. The kind of bee that is now on the endangered species list on the in the uh, continental uh-huh. 
the United States. Uh, used to be a common sign in the a site in the Midwest in years past, and it's called the rusty patched bumblebee. Has a little rusty patch on, <laughs> on its back. Hence the name. Yeah, hence the name. And it's now so <laughs> rare that biologists claim. To never have seen one, some biologists say. Whoa. And you know what? The widespread use of pesticides and the presence of parasites and disease, loss of habitat, so many things are considered to be among the factors in the alarming drop of populations of this bee in the Midwest and a number of other bee species. Well, and I was just going to say, I'm, I'm not specifically sure about the rusty-patched bumblebee specifically, but at our last show that was just in Alabama... There was um, a group of beekeepers, beekeepers uh-huh. who had initially, before this really bad drought started up there, had 52 hives. They're down to 26, and they're expecting um, in the next couple of months to probably be down to about three. My goodness. They're hoping that they can save three with the winter they just had. The combination of the drought and now... The cold snap that we just had right. the cold last weather weekend. Does do damage to beehives. Yeah, sure. we were just there. It's completely odd for these people to have this kind of weather for an ex- extended period of time. But it was down to 22 or something. And during the day, it didn't even break freezing. Wow. It was still in the 20s, remember? Yes. When we were there? Exactly. So yes. that weekend, they were really afraid that something was going to happen to the rest of their bees, and they were going to be lucky to have a handful. So sad state of affairs. I mean, that's a one-two punch, let alone the pesticides. Oh, yeah. Which they were complaining about. So a lot of bad, I don't know. And it's not just in the bad U.S. signs for the health of our bees in the future. The United Nations published <clears throat> a report uh, early last year that 40% of the world's bees and butterflies are in decline, and all told, those species are thought to contribute to the pollination of 75% of plants that produce food. Yeah, Bees so rarely make the news, as you can imagine. Uh, the last time we really talked about bees was when there was this uh, aerial spraying of the chemical pesticide uh, Nalid, for Zika mosquitoes, that was in South Carolina, I think Dorchester County, and that program was meant to kill those mosquitoes, but they were supposed to do that between sunset and sunrise, at night, in other words, I guess, and that's when bees are in their hives and pretty much safe from the pesticide, at least a direct exposure to the pesticide, Mm -hmm. and they did it instead at 8 in the morning, and the bees, they wound up losing 50% of the bees right. in the county. Now, why was the rusty patch bee selected for the list and not others? And that is because, hopefully, others Good will question. be right. protected right. in the future. But the rusty patch bumblebee has just in 20 years gone from being one of those really abundant bees you just can't go a day without seeing one mm-hmm. and becoming almost... Nowhere to be found. Uh, and that was one of the things that I think really concerned me about this is that it all seems to be happening so very fast. So that we have to make no mistake and when we think about this is that all bees, other pollinators, they are in big trouble. And there's something called colony collapse disorder. I don't know if you've heard of it, but the adult bees disappear 
over a short period of time, leaving only larva and the queen to defend for them, uh, defend themselves. Mm-hmm. It's pretty much the end of the hive. And it's possible that it's a pesticide thing, some parasite or disease. But what happens is they think that the bees become disoriented and they lose their way back to the hive oh. and don't survive. So and, they go out to do their job, mm-hmm. and they can't get back to where they live. That's right, and they think Some that it's... Some sort of honing yes. device that they naturally have is somehow taken Disrupted. out of whack. Yes, right, right, right. And we're losing a bigger percentage of beehives than ever before. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have lost, I know, 42% or 48% of all all commercial beehives in the United States in, in recent years. Uh-huh. And... What the beekeepers are doing is they're splitting the hives into three or four hives in the beginning of the spring, and they are trying to keep up with the number of hives that way, but I would think that each hive would be weaker as a result, at least at first, <clears throat> right. if you're winding up splitting it splitting it. You really got to watch pieces. out for them. Um, I don't know if you mentioned this earlier, but we have to understand that we are not going to have food if we don't have bees. I mean, literally, our entire, almost nearly entire food chain relies on pollination from bees. Right. I mean, we can't give up on this, folks. We cannot. Absolutely We're going to starve to death. I mean, it's one thing to be environmentally um, open and, and, and committed to saving species. And it's another thing if you... If if that doesn't interest you, then think of your own hide because, honey, you won't have food if we don't have bees. You're right. They say that. Unless bees... they come up with something else <laughs> to feed us. I don't know. What was that? Soylent Green? Soylent Green. Well, Horrible we food. know, we know what was in Soylent Green, if you guys remember that old movie. From the 70s, uh, right? That's right, yeah. Oh. Uh, bees are responsible, they think, for the existence of one in three bites of food that go into our mouths. So it is a big issue. There are some cities, some states that... Right. Well, they're not responsible for bee for chicken. Mm. That's right. Yes. yes <laughs> so right. let's just be clear about the bites so of food. Not every bite. <laughs> yes. Some bites of food, uh, Doritos, they probably don't have. Um... Yes. Bees are not pollinating chickens and Doritos. Well, Doritos, Although, corn, they, yes. Corn, I, corn. I was going to say, is it corn-based? And then, yes, actually, they do have a hand so they could do that. in yes. helping. That's Although right. mostly corn, I think, is just uh, pollinated through the wind. Oh, I know. Yeah. yeah. Wind. They have, like, huge clouds, essentially, of pollen I, they think that are th- around all these cornfields and that's why they have such beautiful corn cobs when we with do- all every single ear every single uh, kernel actually swollen up whereas our corn is like looks- half half cobs yeah <laughs> That's because we well. That's because we only have maybe 50, 50 plants or something like that. But Aww, it is. we it, still enjoy it. It doesn't yeah. have to be perfect to taste good. That's right. Absolutely. Um, I wanted to just <clears throat> say that there are some cities and some states that are beginning to outlaw certain pesticides that are known to do a lot of damage to our busy, busy friends or little busy bee friends. Mm-hmm. And we have to support the efforts of those people that are trying to. Save the bees. I think we should try to save the whales, too, but you know what? Save the bees because we're eating a lot more vegetables and fruits than we are eating blubber, at least uh, down in Florida, right? (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Whales are pretty to look at, but bees actually help us live. That's right. Now, I want to talk a little bit about 
the cold weather, you know, there is an ice storm going on right now in parts of the Midwest. We've been through already one or two pretty nasty cold snaps. We talked a little bit about hypothermia last week. I want to talk more about it this time around. And one factor that people don't take into account when it comes to exposure to cold is the use of alcohol. Alcohol is a big problem when it comes to dealing with someone who is suffering from exposure to cold or freezing to death. A lot of people say you should get, because of the warm feeling you get when you take a, a slug of, of whiskey, let's say, they think that it makes you warm <clears throat> by doing it. No. It actually doesn't. Alcohol causes the expansion or dilation of blood vessels near the skin. And what that does is it causes the loss of heat from your body, not actually the retention of heat. So that's very important to know that alcohol is not a good idea. Don't don't go to that St. Bernard in the Alps that has a cask of brandy around its neck and <laughs> drink from that because it will not do you good if you are Absolutely. freezing. Now, Bad idea, right? The diagnosis of hypothermia, I don't know if I mentioned it last time, uh, it could be difficult to to make with a standard glass thermometer. Of course, you know, I oftentimes recommend the glass thermometers because uh, you don't have to worry, especially for survival, because you don't have to worry about a battery or things like that. But many times these thermometers really don't go much below uh, 94 degrees Fahrenheit. And the hypothermia begins at just 95 degrees Fahrenheit, so it doesn't give you very much of a a cushion there between the lower limit of your thermometer, glass, typical glass thermometer, and what you would need to do to make a diagnosis of hypothermia. So that's something that's important to know that you might need to have a thermometer that goes lower. A lot of people will have digital thermometers that go down to 88 degrees. That might certainly be better, but of course, then you have the issue as to what happens when the battery runs out and you're off the grid or in some kind of uh, post-apocalyptic setting. Disaster. How Absolutely. about right, an avalanche or they just showed a house in California uh-huh. where they set off avalanches as a precaution so they don't get a big one. They set off little ones with bombs and they just showed a house, a cabin that not only got covered with the snow that fell from the... The sky. That, well, right. <laughs> but from the little avalanches that they set off because it had snowed so much that night, they got a huge avalanche right on top of their house, and the snow busted through the front of the house and was in the front room. Oh, my gosh. So they well, had to shuffle, shuff, shovel it out. So there are all kinds of disasters that can you, you could be stuck in. You wouldn't have even known it was coming. They got a phone call, though. Oh, yeah. we're so going, they knew it was going to happen. We're going to give you an avalanche, and it's going to go right on your house. Well, you know, the <laughs> I'm not problem, sure that was the phone call. On, t- on, t- on top of that, the roof has to be strong enough to handle all those the weight. probably tons and tons of snow yeah. that are, are on it. So I think it was these a pretty pe- dangerous oh, situation. Yeah. Well, these people have an avalanche room. Oh, well, that is pretty awesome. <laughs> they went and got in their avalanche room, and they actually had a neighbor that was a little further down the mountain that apparently had not received the phone call. I don't know if she missed it. They tried to call her or whatnot, but apparently she was unaware that they were about to do this, and her daughter saw the snow coming, and oh, of course boy. they heard it. So she had to run to get away from it. Crazy, baby. She couldn't take shelter. 
So you never know what's going to happen. So stay warm, everyone. <laughs> so if you find somebody, now I, uh, I remember talking about this last time, but just to reiterate, the main issue that you'll see with people that are freezing to death is a change in mental status. You'll wind up seeing, of course, them shiver, of course, in the in the very mm-hmm. early stages. But once your brain is below 95 degrees, which is pretty, not much of a, a change. I mean, you know, I'm usually about Just 98 degrees. degrees. Right. Uh, you begin to have the brain work slower. And <laughs> Do I need to warm you up, honey, so you your brain works faster? There you go. I, well, I need my brain you're to a little, work faster. You're a little below normal It must be a chronic with. problem if my brain is worked slowly <laughs> no, all the time. No, you're fine. <laughs> so anytime you see somebody out in the cold weather who seems confused or, or lethargic, less conscious than they should be, mm-hmm. well, assume that they're hypothermic until proven otherwise. Right. They might look a little drunk. Yes. Punch drunk. Yes. So maybe stumble, right. slur their speech. Right. They'll be apathetic. They won't think very quickly when you ask them a question. Um, so don't assume someone's on alcohol and drugs if they're out in the cold. Exactly. They could just have hypothermia, and that's really important. That's true. I mean, because your judgment. treatment. You know, bad judgment comes from your brain not working so fast. Right. And so this is something that you have to help these people, and you have to take immediate action to reverse these ill effects. Otherwise, a person could go irreversibly into shock and that, and and you could lose your patient that, in that way. Now, the first thing to do, get the person out of the cold. That's pretty simple. We'll get them to a warm, dry location, but lots of times you might not be able to move the person out of the cold for one reason or another. And if that's the case, you've got to shield them. You've got to cover, not only cover them up, but you have to put a barrier of some sort between the very cold ground and their bodies, because that is going to just wind up causing Sucking them to lose more heat, heat out of out their, of their body. body. Exactly. Right. You got to keep an eye on their breathing. People with severe hypothermia they are likely to be unconscious, perhaps, and they may simply go into arrest. And so this is where CPR may have to come in. You want to take off any wet clothing that they have if you can get them into a warm area. If the person's wearing wet clothing, you have to remove them gently. These people may have damage to skin. They may have frostbite, things like that. So you should remove wet clothing and cover them with layers of dry blankets. Now you cover the head also. You have a large amount of surface area that uh, is encompassed by the skin on the head. And so you want to cover the head, but you want to leave the face clear so you can just keep an eye on how they're breathing. Uh, If you can share body heat, that would be good. Some people say that this is a myth, but uh, I believe that if you take your clothes off and you spoon with the person, then you, and and making skin-to-skin contact, then you will be able to give them some of your heat, and uh, especially if you can cover both of you with blankets, and some people are a little, uh, they might cringe a little bit at doing this, squeamish. Skittish. Skittish and squeamish. It's important to remember you're trying to save a life, so that's that's something that's important. Yes. Uh, If the person is awake, you want to give them warm liquids, but oftentimes they're not going to be. So if somebody is not completely awake and oriented, knows what year it is, know where they are, knows their name, then do not give them fluids because what happens is you're going to have somebody who's going to take something in through the wrong pipe and might go right into their lungs and that could be 
very dangerous for them as well. Uh, don't put caffeine. Make sure if you're going to pick a particular beverage, if they are awake and alert, and you're going to give them warm beverages. It should be non-alcoholic. It should be non-caffeinated. Mm -hmm. These beverages are best to help warm the body. So that's that's important. And also, dry compresses. If you if you can get warm dry compresses, not necessarily a hot water bottle, but just warm, you know, warm towels or things like that. <clears throat> That would be very helpful, and if you're going to use that, then you should always put it in areas where blood vessels run close to the skin. They run close to the skin in the area of the neck, in the armpit, in the groin area. These are areas that you'll be able to transport heat more efficiently to the body core. That's what you're trying to do. You're trying to get that body core warmed. Sometimes people who've been exposed to the cold, they may wind up with issues that are Local issues related to, let's say, frostbite. Uh, frostbite is a major problem, and it occurs when cold begins to cause damage to, let's say, fingers and toes, uh, earlobes, nose, lips sometimes. So we do see that, and uh, that's something that you have to watch out for. These kind of people, will the, find you'll find that their extremities are very red, that they may be feeling pins and needles sensation, they feel numbness in the area, and over the course of time, as the condition gets worse, the skin color changes to a sort of white, waxy-looking skin, and then as circulation is totally gone, the skin turns blue, and then once it's turned black, then you know you've lost complete circulation, that tissue has died. That's a condition known as gangrene, I'm sure you've heard of it, and that's just the death of tissue resulting from loss of circulation. Once that happens, then you might need to have amputation uh, done to save the person's right. life in some cases because that's rotting tissue. Yeah, you have to get rid of that tissue. Right, and infections can occur that can go into the entire rest of the body, the live part of the body, and could be very dangerous. Uh, there is something else called immersion foot that used to be known as trench foot uh, in World War I. A lot of soldiers had to stand in trenches that were filled with cold water. Or, or, or even mud. Up, yeah, up yeah. to their knees in cold water. And uh, this is something that caused them to lose a lot of heat from that area. And it looks a lot like frostbite, mm -hmm. except maybe a little juicier, some people oh, say. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's a visual I didn't yeah. need. Oh, goodness. Now, you shouldn't do a lot of rubbing of uh, frostbitten skin. Uh, because that skin is damaged, remember, so you can cause additional trauma to the area. You could use a warm water bath for frostbite or immersion foot, but never warmer than about 104 degrees. Uh, that is something that you would you put the, the extremity in for maybe 30, 60 minutes uh, or until the skin returns to red again. You can use low-dose aspirin, low-dose ibuprofen. Uh, for pain, uh, because people will experience pain as they're getting better from this, and uh, that might help also prevent clots in any damaged blood vessels, so that's something that's important. Some things that are to remember about frostbite, don't allow any tissue that is thawed to freeze again. That's something that's very important. The more often the tissue freezes and thaws, the more the damage mm -hmm. That will occur. Just think about what happens with the steak, for example. It goes from the freezer to outside and back again. That can be a big issue. Now, if you can't prevent your patient from being exposed to freezing temperatures again, you might have to wait before you treat them. But despite that, never wait more than a day. Uh, 
heat lamps, heat lamps and fires, you're going to want to put that person in proximity with heat. But the problem is, is that heat lamps and fires may cause already damaged skin to easily become burned. Remember, your patient's probably numb there, probably can't feel the frostbitten tissue, and significant burns can occur. And so this is something that is, I think, a big issue. A lot of people will have like very hot water bottles or heat lamps. This is probably not the way to go. You can use body heat to thaw mild frostbite. Instead of rubbing it, for example, you might consider mm-hmm. putting frostbitten fingers under your armpit, for, mm-hmm. ex- for example, to help warm them up. So that's something that... Well, that will happen very gently. Like you said, don't give them too much heat all at once. So it's a lower temperature and a more natural warming. Exactly. Now blizzards are going to occur. We're going to have an ice storm in the Midwest, as I mentioned just a little while ago. And, you know, these winter storms, of course, they occur every year. This one has already killed one person. And we have to know that there are common reasons to die in this kind of situation. One of them is in traffic accidents, which is pretty amazing. It's not just being caught outside during a blizzard. that, that A lot of people die in traffic accidents. Well, that's why I was scared driving from... Alabama to Georgia, we went to Atlanta. Right, during a recent cold snap. And it was 20, what did you say, 23 or 24 degrees outside at Uh night. Right. And there was black ice on the ground. And that is pretty scary for someone who lives in South Florida and who grew up driving in South Florida to now experience a dark highway where people were flying at 60, 70 plus miles an hour, including... Huge Mack trucks that didn't seem to be bothered by the black ice on the ground. I was scared, not so much of the black ice, but of ending up in an accident and freezing to death. Right. Because it was still early in the evening. By the time somebody probably would have come by, it would have been in the morning or at least bothered to stop and help us. So uh, that was what was more concerning to me was it being cold outside and something happening to our car. Oh, yeah. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about car survival, but first I want to talk about if you wind up losing power and it is getting very cold, you're Mm -hmm. off the grid or you're in a cabin perhaps in the woods, then what you need to do is to make sure that everyone in your party has to be in one room, preferably the smallest room in the house without windows. Because that's important because the heat from their bodies is going to make a small enclosed area much warmer. That's like two people in a bed at night. Yes, there you go. (laughs) Well, things can get pretty hot hot. there. (laughs) Well... <laughs> All right, this is a family show, so we can't, can't talk more about that. No, it's a snuggling <laughs> uh-huh. thing. <laughs> now, I, I will say that if you do use some form of alternative heat, if you decide to build a fire in the middle of your living room. Bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> At Don't. least make sure there's reasonable ventilation. Now, Hopefully you have a extra wood stove with a chimney that goes <laughs> out the top so you don't have, don't no don't tell people to build a fire in the middle of the living room no bad idea don't listen to him now listen winter conditions don't just affect people they affect cars as well cold affects rubber it affects metal it even decreases the efficiency of the battery right uh, tires become stiff and flat for the first few hundred yards when you get going And your oil and lubricants become thicker at cold temperatures. So this makes the engine work harder. And so 
if you're going to be have uh, going to be in cold weather, your your vehicle is going to be doing uh, heavy duty. Then you got to winterize your vehicle. That means switching to a lighter viscosity oil, changing to snow tires, mm-hmm. choosing the right antifreeze Which ratio. Which we didn't have any of those. I was actually right. afraid the car wasn't going to start mm-hmm. when we left the hotel it from Alabama. A pretty solid car. It was cold yes, outside. It was. And thankfully, that car turned over. I was so happy. Ford Expedition. Yes. Yay. We love it. So, oh, gas tanks, by the way, should never be less than half full. That just makes sense. So you need to have fuel. And also, uh, you don't want to have just a bare amount. That makes sense all the time. That's right. Of course. As parents, we tell our children, if you own a car, top it off when it's at half full. That's right. Now, the first thing you should do before you plan a day outdoors, sometimes you're going to be in snowy weather, you're going to be outdoors, you always should consult the weather radio mm-hmm. for the forecast. If a storm's on the way, postpone your outing until the weather improves. That is very important. And when you go outside, we talked about this last week, mm-hmm. you should dress in layers, dress appropriately with enough warmth and layers. Remember that each successive layer of clothing traps a little thin layer of warm air near your body. Right. And... Uh, wool. Wool is the best material for staying warm because it will stay warm even if it's somewhat wet. It wicks perspiration away from the skin. So these are, are good things. Remember, wet clothing causes your body to lose core temperature faster. So you might consider having a little extra set of clothing either in your backpack or in the car if you're going to be in, in a vehicle. If you're in the wilderness, you should always seek some form of shelter immediately. Get out of the wind the wind is the big issue. Remember, the wind chill factor affects how quickly you become hypothermic. If the temperature is 25 degrees, but the wind chill, wind's going, the wind chill factor is 5 degrees, you're losing temperature from your body, heat from your body, as if it were 5 degrees. Right. And so that's very important. There are a lot of shelters that could be made. We talk about them in our book, The Survival Medicine Handbook. I'll I'll talk about one. Consider a tree well. Let's say you're in the middle of the woods and what you see in the middle of the woods, let's say there are a lot of uh, pine trees Mm -hmm. and there are low-hanging branches and there is an area which is has a little less snow, usually right around the trunk, and that's called a tree well. That's the sunken area that around the trunk you'll see in deep snow. Well, because the tree has a little bit of heat. Right. The tree is warmer than the outside temperature. And also maybe the snow doesn't accumulate uh, right next to the trunk quite quite as much. So Right. Well, that would make sense because of the branches. Right. Preventing it almost like an umbrella. So making a tree well shelter is actually not so not as hard as you might think. Basically, you need to excavate, ex- excavate snow right around the trunk itself. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing. And if the tree has low-hanging branches, that helps provide some protection from falling snow. Now, there might be natural barriers nearby that might serve as windbreaks. That's something that's very useful. Or you can cut off some branches of nearby trees to make a, a roof for yourself, so to speak. Mm-hmm. That might might be helpful. Uh, but the important thing to know is that the space you dig out should be very small. Small shelters must take less effort to keep warm than large ones. And if, if you ha- you're going to have snow as your walls, essentially, at least on the side, and you have to have this snow very well packed. And that'll, in that case, they'll retain heat better and not get quite as, as wet right. in the shelter itself. <clears throat> And also that'll help support uh, whatever makeshift roof you can you can put together. Uh, you should 
have some maybe tree boughs to, on the ground uh, or other kind of debris to give you some some protection from from the cold from ground. From the cold, cold ground. That's important. Uh, add some uh, branches on top. Make a roof, as I mentioned before. If you happen to have a tarp or even one of those little solar blankets, you know, those things, solar blankets that we have on our kits, those are actually seven and a half by four feet. They're huge. By four and a quarter. You don't even expect it wide. these tiny little packages. I mean, they are pretty, pretty big. So that actually, you might be able to use that as a roof. Uh, but you always have to remember, and they're so light, the wind will easily blow them off. So you should tie rocks at the margin as weights, or make sure you have some weight of some sort on top of them. That I think makes a lot of sense. Now, if you can't. Uh, put together some kind of tree well shelter you might be able to find an area of deep snow and build a cave in it you may make <laughs> sort of an igloo i guess pack it well though so it doesn't yeah. collapse over you that's right and you know if you make the cave out of snow just make a nice hole that you can get into and could serve to insulate you from the wind which is say the wind is what i'm factor. talking about it's not that you're not going you're going to be warm in there necessarily just by just because you dug a hole in snow, that's sure. not the case. But you will be out of the wind, and that's very important. Well, people who live in Chicago know this. My daughter's in Chicago. They had a day, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, was minus 30 wind chill factor. Crazy, baby. And it's so windy there. The windy city. The few times I've visited, I mean, it just whips right through you. It actually turned my umbrella inside out. Oh, <laughs> Folks. my gosh. <laughs> and and I, it just gave up on the umbrella because the wind was just much stronger. So that's what happened to it. <laughs> yeah. Now, a lot of people, uh, if you have the wherewithal to make a fire, that'll that's a good way to make heat. But make sure if you have it in a shelter, in one of these shelters that we were talking about, make sure you have some kind of ventilation hole so you don't get uh, overcome by smoke. That's something that's going to be very important. If you, Again, by the, way, the fire's in the shelters. Right. <laughs> fire <laughs> safety. There you go. Now... <laughs> If you have a, of course, any shelter would have an entrance. If the entrance shows be at a 90-degree angle to the wind, so the wind doesn't go into your Through, shelter. Right. And uh, the same thing with ventilation holes should be at a 90-degree angle to the prevailing winds. Now, staying hydrated, that is very important. But they do suggest not eating snow. Remember, your body first has to melt it, and it takes heat. To melt snow, and so that means you, you're using up some of your own heat. Now, if you don't have fire to melt snow, put a container that has snow in it, maybe in your clothes, not next to the skin, but in between a layer or so two. So there's a little bit of heat. Right. right. And over the course of time, that will become water. Right. And so that's something that would make a lot of sense. Now, let's say you're stranded in your car. That is, in a sense, a shelter. So that's something. But the first thing that you should ask before you get in the car in the first place is, is this trip necessary? You, know, you don't have to leave the house in a snowstorm. Don't, don't leave the house, period. If you do, drive as if your life depended on it, remember, because even a small amount of ice can make you swerve oh, right boy. off the road. There was a point where I was doing 35 miles an hour. Remember that? Yes. I was just letting all the Mack trucks go around me. The black ice was so bad. If I touched my brakes, we we started moving a little bit. It was really, really scary. All right. Well, I let, don't want to repeat that experience again. I, <laughs> well, we may have to one day. Oh, That's no. right. 
They have to be cold, cold weather. You just have to be smart about cold weather. And if you don't have to go out. I was very careful. We made you, it safely. If you don't have to go out, you shouldn't. But yeah. you have to be there. You've got to think about it. Let's say that despite your best efforts, say you're stuck on the road and in a blizzard. Now, there might be help on the way. But what if it isn't? The first thing that you have to do is, of course, always stay calm. And don't automatically just leave the car and say, I'm going to you know, walk. walk to Somewhere. the next town. I mean, you have to remember that because of your own body heat and maybe if your your car is actually able to run the heater, mm-hmm. well, you know, you, it's going to be warmer there than outside. Definitely safer from the environment. Right. And at least inside a right, running right. car. And at least you're protected from the wind. Now, having adequate shelter, that's one of the keys to survival in the wilderness. Well, and that goes also for a highway, mm-hmm. a snow-covered highway. Uh, wet snow can block up your exhaust system and cause carbon monoxide poisoning. That is something very important to keep an eye on. Make sure that your your exhaust system is not stopped up with snow. You're going to need fresh air. But, oh, don't crack a window, however, on the side where the wind is coming from. Right. You, know, you lose heat more, uh, more quickly that way. And if you're in a group, huddle together as best you can in the car to create a warm pocket there. Uh, and remember what I said about uh, frost-bitten hands, putting them in your mm-hmm. armpit. Put your own hands in your armpits or otherwise keep moving somewhat to make your muscles produce heat. Now, you might be able to dig yourself out of your snow condition, but remember that if you overexert yourself in extreme cold, cold you're going to sweat, and wet clothes are main cause of hypothermia, so make sure that you don't overdo it. If you have flares, use them because that will give you a shot to let people know that you need help. So I think you need a that, good car kit, right? Absolutely, in these these winter times, yeah, have those flares out. I think that would be very useful. Speaking of the winter survival car kit, there are a number of items you should always have in your car, especially in cold weather, and these are meant to keep you safe if the unthinkable happens and you wind up stranded. Without hope of rescue. And this is where you guys need a pen and paper if you don't have this already. And you live up north. (laughs) Absolutely. We've got a whole list here for you. It always helps. Sometimes you have a list and sometimes you have supplies, but you forgot one thing. So it's always good to hear other people's lists. Exactly. Now, wool blankets. Great idea. Big, big, big asset in cold weather if you're going to be on the road. So... That is going to be a, a main, a good way to keep warm. Spare sets of dry clothes, as I mentioned before, keeps keep a set of clothes, extra clothes in the car itself. Socks, hats, mittens, all of this stuff is going to be very helpful. There are these hand warmers or instant heat packs that you can find. That simply activate them by shaking them or squeezing them, and they last for hours. You might as well have a box full of those. I think those would be very, very, <laughs> very useful. They're not expensive either. If you know you're going to be traveling in yeah. cold weather, yeah. And they're not really that expensive. If, you were, if you're a skier, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And they're very good to have it with you. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that because when we were driving, I was trying to think what we might have in our truck because we had it full of, you know, our medical supplies, what we were, we were taking. And <laughs> I thought, you know, we don't have hand warmers because we live in South Florida and this is not our, our supplies are not winter car survival right. supplies they're first aid 
car survival and first right. aid home survival and first aid camping survival. Well, you know, the truth of the matter is, is the area that we were going in wasn't going to be as cold in uh, Huntsville, Alabama as no, it was normally. a little surprising. <laughs> so it was a little bit surprising. Matter of fact, the day after it was like I think almost 60 degrees. So it, it's sort of funny that the weather just Turned. took a turn for the worse just when we happened to be there. Yeah, so I was thinking about the hand warmers. Of course, we mentioned flares before. That's a, that's a good idea. If you are concerned you're going to be in an area where you, your car might get stuck, you might consider having some sand or some rock salt that'll help give traction mm-hmm. where it's needed. You might want to have a tow chain or a rope in case somebody comes by and can help you. That's always a good that's, idea That's anyway. a good idea. Of course, uh, jumper cables, everybody should have that in their car. And you should always have, of course, water, drinkable water and food. So have some water bottles, have energy bars, uh, MREs, uh, M&Ms, I don't care what. That I think would be useful. If you're going to dig yourself out of the uh, snow, you're going to need to have one of these uh, shovels. There are these combination tools like a Chinese army shovel. Oh, yeah. Just be careful. It's good quality because some of those are made really thin and they're... You just fall apart. They're they're not quality. They're not quality. (laughs) I'll say that. (laughs) Having, of course, a knife is always useful and having uh, matches, lighters, fire starters to manufacture heat if you have to have, uh, have to make a fire or have to camp in, camp out kind of thing. That's important. Uh, if you might have candles, uh, flashlights. Now, if you, flashlights are very important. You need a light source. And the thing about flashlights is that a lot of people put the batteries in and no, don't use it again for months, and the batteries are dead by the time that they need the flashlight. So always either have the batteries separate or have them in uh, backwards so that they extend their life as long as possible. Uh, tarp and duct tape, that would be very useful, especially high, a brightly colored one might help in in rescue efforts to find you. That's something that's important. Uh, you should have, of course, a cell phone and a charger, weather radio. These things are standard useful items. And guess what else you should have? You should have a medical kit and medications. If you take medications, you always should have a supply with you at all times. Uh, if you're going to be in areas where you possibly could find yourself stranded, and a medical kit will certainly help deal with any injuries that might occur. So this this is great. Of course, a full, you know, a full set of camping supplies would be awesome to keep, uh, but you have to have the space in your car, and at least the things that we mentioned uh, will give you a head start in keeping safe and sound, even if you're stranded. And if you have a few supplies and a little luck, you know, you should be able to survive even in the worst blizzard. And that's not to downplay the danger of it, and for that reason, remember, always ask yourself, is this trip necessary? I want to talk a little bit about avalanches. You know, I've never talked about avalanches on the show, and of course, we don't have a lot of avalanches down here in South Florida, so I don't claim to be an expert at avalanches, but I will tell you what I think you should do with regards to avalanches. So let's talk a little bit about that. Now, snow slides, they're part and parcel of the winter. uh, And it just pays to know what to do if you're caught in one of these snow slides. Uh, 
this is not just good advice for a skier or a backcountry camper, but probably for that guy in Lake Tahoe who wound up having his home covered with avalanche snow. I mean, and really anybody, even on a mountain road in winter, uh, if especially if you're in an area where they're where it's hilly and there's slopes uh, right next to the road, well, you know what? You could easily have a, a bunch of snow fall down upon you as you're driving. So that's something that's very, very important. If you're in a remote location, you're bugging out, there you have it. That's probably going to be sort of mountainous. Also, if it's if it's remote enough, it's a better, a better shelter uh, or a better retreat. And so you are at risk for avalanches as well. Now, you can die of hypothermia in an avalanche. That's certainly possible. But there are a lot of ways that you can die if you find yourself a victim of an avalanche. And one of them is trauma. Serious injury, not uncommon in an avalanche. And not just due to being crushed by the weight of the snow. There's lots of debris that comes along. It's not just snow in there. There's rocks, branches. Even entire trees can be carried along in the cascade. So that's something that's important. Suffocation is very a very common way to die in an avalanche if you're buried in the snow. So what can you do to make it less likely that you'll die in an avalanche? Well, on any wilderness trek, it makes sense to go in a group. And that goes for avalanche country as well, except for one thing. You should always space your party out far enough so that there's not too much weight on any one area of snow. Besides cold winter clothing, specialized gear would include things like an avalanche beacon. That's a device that emits uh, a pulsed radio signal, and everyone in the group should carry one. If a member gets buried in an avalanche, the rest of the party picks up the signal from under the snow. And that, I think, would be a way that you can get found and get saved. An avalanche shovel is good. That's a short aluminum shovel that fits inside your backpack, helps chop and remove snow and debris over a buried hiker. These shovels usually have telescoping shafts. Uh, D-shaped grips might be advisable, easily can be used with mittens. Uh, An avalanche probe is essentially just a stick about six feet in length. It helps you pinpoint where the exact location is of an avalanche victim. You can use it to tell a victim under the snow from the ground. The ground will be hard when you probe it, and a victim will feel softer. Uh, a helmet's always good. Many fatalities occur due to head trauma from rocks and debris and avalanches flung around by the snow. So that's a, a wise choice for just about anyone. There is something now, a skier's airbag. And these are relatively new, but they're brightly colored airbags that auto-inflate with the trigger. And they work like an avalanche to keep you buoyant and therefore closer to the surface of the snow. Uh, excellent addition to your backpack if you can afford it. I'm not sure how much they cost. I think they're relatively reasonable. It helps you stay buoyant in a fall through an ice, through ice as well, in the, in over a frozen lake, let's say. So that's definitely something you can do if you find yourself in an avalanche. One thing that would be a very reasonable thing to do is to swim. Yes, I said swim. The key is to stay as close to the top of the snow as possible. So increase your surface area by spreading your legs with your feet downhill, raising your hands. And while in this position, swing your arms while trying to stay on your back because it's easier to breathe if you're face up. Similar as if you were swimming the backstroke. If you can try to keep your foot on top of the uh, moving snowbed and with any luck, you'll stay towards the surface of the snow. So that's very useful. And of course, when avalanche begins... You should yell, let everybody know in the group that 
there's trouble at the very start of the slide, wave your arm, shout as loud as you can to alert as many people as possible to your location. Do that after the avalanche starts, not beforehand, because you might actually start an avalanche with loud noises. If the avalanche starts below you, you might notice a crevice forming in the snow. You can get uphill of that crevice, jump uphill of it quickly. It might not get carried off. If not, run sideways as fast as you can away from the center of the event. That's where the snow is going to be moving fastest and with the most force. Heavier, heavier objects sink in snow, so jettison any backpack that's not an airbag and any unnecessary heavy equipment so you'll be closer to the surface. That's very important. Throw off uh, light things so that the people might be able to see your equipment and find you a little easier. That's something that makes a lot of sense. If you have one of these avalanche airbags, go ahead and deploy it. Someone was just saved by that. That's right. A couple days ago. Yep. If you're buried in the snow, you did your best, but you got still a little bit of time, 15 minutes on average, before you suffocate. Snow may, may be porous, but remember that warm breath melts the snow, which then refreezes solid ice. That causes the breathing to become difficult, and you might suffocate. The larger the air pocket you have, the longer you survive. And so as the avalanche slows to a stop, put an arm in front of your face in such a way as to form a space that will give you the most air. If possible, raise the other arm straight up towards the avalanche surface. Your glove, therefore, might signal your location to rescuers. Expand your chest by breathing deeply. That will give you more room to breathe once the snow is settled. Now, once you're completely buried, the snowpack may be so dense as to prevent you from moving. Stay calm in order to use up less oxygen if you're not sure which way is up. Spit. The spit will actually go towards the ground due to gravity. If you can move, work to make a bigger air pocket towards the direction of the surface. You're only going to have a second or two to act to avoid most avalanches, but if you act rapidly, have some of this rescue equipment, some of which is new and high-tech, might prevent you from being the winner's latest victim. You know, we are just about out of time. I want to thank everybody for listening to the Survival Medicine Hour with Joe Alton, MD, Dr. Bones, and... Nurse Amy. The lovely Nurse Amy. And we will be back next week, same time, same station. Thanks for listening. Are you worried about how dangerous the world has become? In these days of terrorist attacks, natural disasters, or even a future collapse, you need to be medically prepared to keep your family safe. I'm Amy Alton, ARNP of store.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find an entire line of uniquely designed medical kits and supplies for when help is not on the way. For everything from individual first aid kits to the ultimate family medical bag, go to store.doomandbloom.net today. You'll be glad you did. These days of terrorists, active shooters, and worse, every school, workplace, and homestead should have the equipment necessary to save a life. The first aid bleeding control module is meant to provide the items you need to stop hemorrhage. It's compact, lightweight, and has easy-to-read waterproof instructions. If every teacher's desk, worker station, and car or truck had one, have no doubt, it would save lives. Available at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net.